Gracious God, thank you for this time together. Thank you that in your might and in your mercy, you let just regular folks like us hear extraordinary words from you. And we're thankful that when your word comes to us, our lives are changed. We're led into the transformation that you desire for each of us. And wherever we may be this morning, whether we would say, we followed you for a long time, we're hungry for a word, whether we'd say we're hurting, we don't know what we believe yet, but we want to hear something life-giving, or we're just tired. Would you meet us where we are? Would you minister to us through the power of the Holy Spirit? Would your teaching ministry come into this time in such a way that glorifies you? May the words of my mouth and the things that each of us consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, great to see all of you here this morning. I want to start with a question. What do you do with success? When you experience success, when you uh, finish a project and it's the most amazing thing ever and all your colleagues are standing back going like, ooh, that's good. Like, what do you do with that? How do you receive that? What is it like for you to feel successful as a parent, to feel successful as a teacher, as a student? In all these different corners of our lives, success hits us in different ways. And how we respond to success says a lot about our character. Similarly, how do you react when you fail? What happens when you come up to a project and it just takes the life out of you? You can't figure it out. You've got to keep going to the help desk. There's, there's no pathway through it. How about when you feel like you're failing as a parent, when you're using your adult voice to say very loud things to your children, as I was often doing this week, and you're not feeling super great about that? What do you do with your failure? What does it do to you? to know that, yeah, that wasn't my best. I love uh, watching movie trailers. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, like the previews? When, you, when people go to movies, they show previews. I don't go to a lot of movies, so I'm assuming this still happens. I watch a lot of movie trailers online. It's kind of a little break for me in the middle of my day. I don't go to a lot of movies, but I watch movie trailers, and I think I've seen the movie, even though I really haven't. Like, yeah. So a movie trailer came out this week that was kind of cool. Some of you may have seen it. It's for a movie coming out at Christmas called The Greatest Showman. Has anybody seen this? It's like new. Okay, I'm the only person that's seen it. That's great. I'll tell you all about it. Uh, it's a musical, right? Uh, Hugh Jackman is in it, who has a wonderful voice, so I'm sure it'll be really great. And I wanted to just pick out something related to success from this movie trailer. The movie trailer shows, you know, this beautiful kind of epic movie, and it's about, I think, the life of uh, the guy that started uh, a circus. And one of the taglines in the trailer says, from the lyricist who brought you La La Land. Okay, so if you remember La La Land a year ago, big musical, very successful, Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, really great. So whoever was responsible for crafting the lyrics from La La Land is now part of the promotion for this new movie. Like, their success is now the high watermark, and the movie is promoting it as such. And if you saw La La Land and you love La La Land, I've just encouraged you to go see a movie, so you're welcome. But I wonder if that isn't reflective of something much bigger and deeper within our culture. What's the first thing we say to someone after they've written a successful book or made a successful product? When's the next one coming out? When are you going to repeat your success? When is the next version of this coming? And I think that's natural and that's normal, but that says something about how we view success, what success does to us. And if you're really good at your job, you can relate to this. If you've just done something really great at work and everybody's coming around you and they're cheering for you and there's confetti raining down, I mean, it's great. 
the next day at work is really tough, potentially, because what's in front of you? Figuring out the next way to succeed, figuring out how to make the next project work just as good as the one that you did before. It's that terrible cycle of comparison. We all step into it, and it reflects something deeper about us. It reflects our character. Now, I mention all this about success and failure and character because the story that we're looking at today, which Maddie read for us, is a case study in Jesus' character. And throughout this sermon series that we've been doing on spiritual disciplines, the things that keep coming up again and again for me, at least as I look at the text, as I look at my own life, is convictions about my character. And by character, I just mean who we are deep down at the core, like who we really, truly are when we roll up to these moments of crisis, when we roll into success, what makes you, you, is your character. And I'm going to make the case that the way that we navigate either success or failure shows a lot about our character. And we're going to look at two spiritual disciplines today that I think are character forming and character expanding. One is solitude and one is hospitality. Both of these are in your outline, uh, in your bulletin, so you're welcome to open that and take a look at it. And I want to define some terms as we get started, and then we'll jump into the scriptures. I've mentioned Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, before. It's an amazing study. If you just want to have a great guide to all kinds of spiritual disciplines, pick that one up. Foster defines a difference between solitude and loneliness. There's a big difference between solitude and loneliness. Loneliness is experiencing an inner emptiness. When we're lonely, that feeling follows us around wherever we are. We can be in a room full of people and feel totally lonely. And we live in a culture that is increasingly, toxically lonely. Solitude's different. Solitude, Richard Foster says, is inner fulfillment. So if loneliness is inner emptiness, solitude is inner fulfillment. Inner fulfillment means we are satisfied with what God has done and how he has shaped us when we intentionally disconnect from other people. We're able to see that, we're able to hold out our lives, our successes, our failures in their proper light when we disconnect from the world. Loneliness is toxic, and the lessons that we learn in solitude is portable. They will go with us wherever we go. And hospitality is simply welcoming people into our lives. It's giving out of the abundance and generosity that God has given to us, pouring that out into someone else's life. And so we're going to see in the text today how these things walk and talk together. And we're going to see how solitude is something that people are called to do, to grow and to be transformed in their character. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, 35 through 39. That's the passage that Maddie read for us. We'll be coming back to it. I want to set up some context and then just offer two kind of brief highlights. The context is Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's starting off in Mark's gospel. It is chapter one, like things have just started to get rolling. And so far, he is experiencing a ton of success. He's seeing really good things happening all around him. People are excited to see him. There's sort of this buzz when he enters the room. He's been going around the Holy Land. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. In other words, he's got a really high batting average. Like he's going to the plate and he's going like three for four, like almost every day. It's great. And he comes up to a new challenge and he's able to succeed. And he comes up to a new challenge and he's able to succeed. And so this is the trajectory that he's on. He's riding the wave of success. His popularity is growing. And in our passage today, he steps away from all of that. He takes time to go and be literally in the wilderness. And so the two lessons I want to highlight from this are that power is found in the wilderness. We find power in the wilderness. 
And secondly, we're going to talk about how true character is revealed. Power is found in the wilderness, and true character is revealed. First, let's talk about the power that Jesus finds in the wilderness. What do we mean by that? Let's look at Mark 1.35. It says this, In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. That deserted place word, that's the wilderness word. It's eremos in the original language. That kind of sounds like the word arid. An arid climate, an arid place is not a place where there's a lot of life, where there's a lot of greenery. It's not like the Pacific Northwest. Think more eastern Washington, think the high desert. He is in an arid place. There is not a lot of stuff around him upon which he can rely on a crisis. If you've ever been on a long backpacking trip, maybe you've had this experience where you hike into the forest and you get to your first supply depot where you're supposed to get food and supplies and water and all the other things that you need, and then you've got X number of days until you get to the next supply depot. It's the time between those two supply depots. That's the wilderness. You're living off of what you have. You're not going to get many more resources. That's what you got. The interesting thing for Jesus is the time between the supply depots is not a time of scarcity. It is a time of abundance for him. It was not the distance between those two points that he was worried about. That was where he knew he was going to be sustained. He knew that in the time between when he went into the wilderness, when he came back out again, he was going to get filled up because distractions were going to be removed from his life. He wasn't going to have to deal with all these people coming to him. Even though he came to serve them, he still had to step back from them. In the wilderness, in the desert, is where Jesus' solitude became inner fulfillment. It crystallized for him. And now I think most of us are wondering, how is that possible? How is it possible to go and be isolated and yet be filled up? How is it possible to disconnect from the things that really give me life, my time with my people, my connections with my friends? How does that work? How can I know that if I go into the wilderness, if I go have some time by myself, if that's what you're saying, Pastor, okay, fine, how do I know what's going to happen? And the answer is you don't. The answer is, and I don't mean this to sound flippant, but it's true, in order to know what you need in solitude, you got to go to solitude. In order to understand what you're supposed to be learning, how you're supposed to be growing, you actually just have to go. So an example from my own life, I have a couple of places that I love to go to get away. Uh, there's a trail along I-90 that I love to hike. There's a, a place down near where we used to live in Gig Harbor where I used to go kayaking. Just go be alone. Go disconnect for a little while. And I'm kind of 50-50 introvert, extrovert, so I like getting away from people, but I also like people, so there's this funny tension there. And so I was hiking. Uh, I went to Tiger Mountain State Park, which is not far from here. I was hiking alone uh, a couple of years ago. And I was going along by myself. I was just thinking and praying, just kind of taking time to just be with God. And all of a sudden, I felt really emotional. I felt like some things start to well up inside of me. And as I reflected more and more on it, it was about an exchange I had had with a member of my family and one of my kids and me. It was this kind of three-part triangulation problem. And I started to feel deep sadness and conviction because in that relationship, there was a lot of brokenness. It just it wasn't working. We had said some things. I had said some things that weren't very kind. And so as I'm hiking, out of the blue, I had no idea that this would be what came and hit me. I started to feel the weight of that brokenness. And I actually, I'm not kidding, y'all, I started to weep while I was hiking along. I started to cry. 
because of the pain that was in that relationship, because of what it had meant to one of my kids to kind of go through this. And it was a conflict like any of us have been through. I'm just not going into a lot of detail about it because it was just hard. But I did not start out on my hike thinking to myself, I need a good cry. I'm going to go cry today. And I, I don't mean to belittle that. There are a lot of us for whom, like, I need a good cry. That's a real thing. Go do it. For me, I need to actually sit with that moment and go like, okay, whatever God is bringing into this moment, I really need to feel this. And if I don't stop, I won't feel it. I'll just blow by it. That's what I'm talking about when we go in solitude. I did not plan on that being how my day would go. And it was the thing that, for whatever reason, God wanted to kind of lift up for me, and he did so through tears. And he did so through a feeling of, I still haven't gotten into this relationship. I still haven't tried to make this right. And so that kind of hung over me, and it was a thing I was avoiding. So if you go and spend time by yourself, if you want to go pursue solitude, you want to go on a hike, you want to go on a walk, do so knowing that what God wants to bring up in front of you, you may not plan on but it will inform and shape your character in powerful ways, like it did for me. So my question for us to consider is, are you in the wilderness right now? Do you have a sense of being in an arid place, a dry place? Do you find yourself at a loss for words when you think about a relationship in your family, or with a friend, or with a neighbor? Where are you experiencing this climate where it's just hard to get through it? And what would it mean for you to kind of take that thing that's hard for you, take that thing that's joyful for you, go off in solitude and listen to what God may be saying about it? To disconnect intentionally from the things that are distracting us, from seeing what God wants, what he desires, that's the goal of solitude. And just like I experienced, it may be something very surprising. Maybe something that you weren't planning on looking at. And that's the beauty of following Jesus Christ, following a God who is alive, who is with us, is he is with us and bringing these things back to us so that we can see his desires for us. So there's great power in being able to go and do that. There's great power that can be found in the wilderness. And really what we learn is the wilderness isn't all bad. It's not all bad. There's a lot of good stuff to learn. So you can turn to your neighbor and say, the wilderness isn't all bad. You can go ahead and say that. The wilderness, it's not all bad. The next lesson is that character comes in the wilderness. So if the wilderness isn't all bad, then the character formation that's supposed to come in the wilderness must be good, or it can be good. Look look at verses 36 through 38 with me of our passage. Simon and his companions hunted for Jesus, and when they found him, they said to him, everybody is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. This is where Jesus' deep, wonderful character is fully on display. He's got crazy things going on around him. People are excited. He's the most successful guy at the office. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And we love that, right? We love being around people who are just, there's an exciting buzz around them, and there's cool things happening, and they're doing their work really, really well, or they're a really good parent. It's awesome to be around that, right? And how does Jesus react to that? He doesn't react to that by saying, well, you know, my next miracle is going to be even more amazing than the last one. He's not trying to commercialize it. He's not trying to say, let's find a bigger place so I can have more people around me. Let's build a bigger building. He's not saying that. He says to his companions, let's keep going. Can you say that with me? Let's keep 
going. He's the captain of the ship, and he says, steady as she goes. Steady as she goes. And I love that because it is so tempting, isn't it? When we're in the middle of something successful, when we're in the middle of something that we've worked really hard on, that we're excited about, that things are starting to come together, to just kind of sit back and go like, oh, yeah, I knew this was going to be good. I had no idea how good it was going to be. I am really good at this right now. That's our temptation. Always, always, always. And yet what Jesus says is, steady as she goes. My argument is that he's able to make that call in this moment because of what happened right before this in the passage. He's by himself. He's with the Father. When we go disconnect, when we go take solitude at its face value, when we go and be alone, whether we've had tremendous success or whether we have felt like a tremendous failure, neither of those things define us. We cannot be subjected to the idolatry of defining ourselves by our successes or our failures because when we go off and be alone with the Father, what does the Father remind us of? That you are beloved, that you are safe, you are his treasure. He actually says this to Jesus just a few verses before this when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River and the heavens open up and God says, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Don't you think that gave Jesus the most incredible confidence going forward? The most amazing power flowed out of him after that moment. And he could hold his successes or his failures in the proper light. And because he was the son of God, he didn't have to worry as much about failure. Not like we do. But he stepped away and he found strength of character. So what do we learn from that? We learn that there is tremendous value in stepping away from the pressure to repeat our success. And we cannot do that when we're standing on the stage. You cannot take time to think about the good and the bad and the indifferent parts of your life if you just keep going forward, if you just keep trying to live it out. You can't think about your job really well when you're at your job. You have to step away from it. You can't think about your parenting really well if you never take a break to get away from your kids for a little bit. Success or failure, we cannot hold either of those things more heavily if we practice solitude, if we practice the chance to get back and get some distance. We need to be able to hold even our greatest successes as a distance because then it can't own us. And whatever narrative you have right now, whether it's the narrative of success of what you've been doing well or it's the narrative of failure, whatever you are running toward right now, that does not define you, church. And it does not define me. It does not define our lives. And that's how this text really hit me this week. I'm at my very best when I'm able to do what Jesus did, when I'm able to step back and hold out the parts of my life to him as objectively as I can. And sometimes it'll bring tears, which I didn't plan on. And sometimes it'll bring conviction that I didn't plan on. But it is always, always good. I love this quote from Dallas Willard. I posted it on our Facebook page this week. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviors that hinder our integration into God's order. Solitude allows me to step back and take stock of where I am falling short of what God wants for my life and allows me to see it in the right light. When I get overwhelmed, which I do sometimes, the solution is not put my head down and work harder. The solution for me is to step back. And I want to be committed to this practice of solitude. So what I've been trying to do is create little pockets of that in my calendar, schedule it a few weeks out. Uh, My office is kind of near a beautiful park, so that'll mean I'll just go take a walk in the middle of the afternoon, go listen to God. I'd love to get away more often, quarterly even, 
Got to work that out with my family because that's quite a cost to us. But however you can do that, however you can carve out those little pockets of time in your life so that you can hold out before God the things that are objectively hard to discern, go do it. Work it out with your spouse, work it out with your roommates, however you can do it, go do it. And if you're already doing it, keep it up. Find ways to get the distance that we need so that our successes and our failures don't define us. Can we do that? Can we say amen? Amen. We're not done yet, but we can say amen and agree. So let's talk about hospitality. This is a bit of a shift, but I'll be able to link this back together for us, I think. Hospitality is so wonderful. Hospitality is what we, hopefully, all of us are about to step into this week ahead with Thanksgiving. Maybe you're thinking, like, you don't know my family, dude. There is no hospitality there. (laughs) That's okay. Let's see if we can't find some ways to get into this in a way that blesses others. Turn with me uh, to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. So fast forward three years in Jesus' ministry. This is when he's kind of wrapping things up. He's about to go to the cross. He's having a few last words with his disciples. And at the end of chapter 25, he describes the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful picture of heaven and of what kind of moving toward heaven will look like for those who follow Jesus Christ. So listen to this. This is Matthew 25, starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Familiar words if you've been around church a little bit. But here's what I want to highlight from them. Hospitality is achieved in two different ways. Hospitality is both as you go and it's sacrificial. It's as you go, and it's sacrificial. So let me explain what I mean by that. As you go means that we can practice hospitality, caring for others, opening up our homes, opening up our lives. You can do that in your everyday normal life, and a lot of you do this so well. One of my favorite things about Thanksgiving around here, around Bethany, is every time we come back together again after Thanksgiving, person after person after person, just in a very nonchalant way, tells me about how there was a seat at their table that they gave to a coworker, how that they gave it to a neighbor, that they gave it to a friend. I love picturing all of you at Thanksgiving with people at your tables who aren't family family, but for that day, they're family. I love that, and I love that everyone in this room has seen that, and I want us to just keep that up. That is such a wonderful thing, and that is an as-you-go kind of hospitality. Just in the course of doing your daily life, you make room for others. You show hospitality to them. As you go, look for ways to provide food for the hungry, to provide clothing for the naked, and to be a welcoming place for the stranger. You already do that really well, Bethany, and I just think that's awesome. Hospitality frees us from our selfishness, so good job there. Hospitality, though, is also sacrificial. If you look at the book of Acts, chapter 9, a guy named Ananias is drugged into a kind of hospitality he did not want. And I'm talking about the moment when Saul, who had been persecuting and trying to kill people in the church, was converted and became the Apostle Paul. There was this transformative moment for him, and this guy, Ananias, gets tapped on the shoulder And an angel of the Lord says to him, I need you to go take care of this guy, Saul. And that was like Ananias being told to go take care of his worst enemy. And he fought the angel on it. He said, no, I don't want to do this. But if you read Acts 9, and I encourage you to do that in your own time, 
he pushed through that desire to not be hospitable. He heard the call of God and he said, I know what this guy's about. I know how terrible he is. I know that this is putting myself in danger, but God has given me something to go do. And by caring for a person that was his enemy, he helped launch an incredible movement in the church. And he didn't even know it. God said to Ananias, this man is helpless, so you go help him. He is helpless, you go help him. This man is hungry, you go feed him. This man is wandering and alone and he's broken, so you give him some rest. Ananias enacts what Jesus said his kingdom would look like. Jesus said, my kingdom will be a place where people who are hungry are fed, where the naked are clothed, where those who are wandering are welcomed in. This was not Ananias' choice. This was not put in front of him as like, well, if you feel like doing this today. No. He was not looking for a really uncomfortable opportunity to put himself in. But it found him. God led him to that. And I wonder if that isn't the place that a lot of us are in right now. That there are uncomfortable opportunities for us that we just got to lean into it. The awkward guy at work, he needs a place to go on Thanksgiving. The neighbor that you haven't gotten to know very much yet. A kid from your kid's school where you're going like, man, I don't know what's going on there, but that kid, let's give him a place. Let's give their family a place. I love that we already have a foundation at Bethany of welcoming people into our tables, but I wonder if we couldn't go just a step further and really reach out to those who may be far, far, far from God and help them find a place where they belong. The question I'm asking is, what's the opportunity to practice hospitality that's right in front of you? And is there a risk in that? And could you step into that? Could that be God's calling to us? Because hospitality, the gospel is hospitality. This is Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't get cleaned up. We didn't show up to dinner on time. We didn't bring any food. We didn't have anything to offer at the table. And yet, here's your place. Here is a warm and welcoming home for you. You belong. And if that is what we've received in Jesus Christ, our hearts should ache should just ache to find a way to include others in that time. My life was transformed through hospitality when I first moved to the Pacific Northwest. This was almost 15 years ago, and I was welcomed in at a table of a family that I knew through the church that I was working at in Gig Harbor. It was my first winter in the Northwest, which was brutal. It was cold and dark, and I'm like, does the sun ever shine? Like, what is this? And this wonderful family found out that it was my birthday. And the mom called me and she said, hey, we're having a birthday dinner for you. Get over here at six. And I was like, what? <laughs> and they welcomed me into their house. And they made me an amazing meal. And their kids were running around and it was crazy, but they showed me that I belonged. And increasingly, our culture needs to see that we need to belong before we can believe. And I believed. I was following Jesus Christ. I mean, I, there, that was clear but I didn't feel like I belonged yet in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't feel like I belonged in Gig Harbor or at that church. And after that, it started to get a lot better. My life was different because someone else showed me that I belonged. Who needs you to show them that they belong? Do you feel like you need to belong? If so, be vulnerable. Take a risk. Ask somebody around here, like, hey, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? We don't have any plans. You want to get together. Get together with your small group. Find ways to lean into that. Belong before you can believe. Find a seat at the table. So, what have we learned today? Success does not define us. Failure does not define us. 
Our character is formed in and through Jesus Christ, and we need to take time to think about what he's doing in our lives. Hospitality is where we pour out these wonderful things that God has taught us and revealed to us through our solitude. And so if we want to pursue these things, we've got to make time for it. And it's going to be costly, but it's worth it. Now, I want to finish our time together today by doing something that's just a little more inspirational, just a little bit more fun. So you ready to have a little bit of fun? You ready to use your voices just a little bit? Oh, I heard a yes. Okay, good. All right. You can say yes, you can say amen, because I'm going to share a couple of statements with us, and I would love to hear a bunch of yeses, amen. Can we try it? Can you say amen with me? Say amen. Okay, when I hold my hand up, you can say amen. The church is called the hospitality. Isn't that right, church? Why? Because Jesus gives us real food when we're hungry. He is the bread of life. He is our living water when we're parched. Just start saying yes and amen. Come on. He is our living water. He is our new clothing when we are naked. Amen. He is our belt of truth. Yes. He is our breastplate of righteousness. He's our shield of faith. He is our healing for our broken bodies. He is our freedom when we are in jail. And he is our release from pain and addiction. Amen. And yes, and he is your joy. He is my joy when we are afraid. Can you just say amen to that? Amen. He welcomes you. Amen. He welcomes me. Amen. Amen and amen. That is our calling, church. Can we go do that together? That's the right answer. Good choice. All right, please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you would invite us into your family. Our worthiness is not ours. It is the worthiness of Jesus Christ. And we say yes and amen to his offering to us. And so now we know, we know that we've been welcomed in. Now we know that we're safe with you. Now we know that we have a home, that we can belong. So God, would you show us how to belong and to invite others into the belonging that you offer to us through Jesus Christ. We love you. We know that you're in charge. And so as you lead us further into your worship and further into the the richness of this time, do so to bring glory to yourself. We pray in the name of Christ.